Revelation 14. We're slowly making our way through this book. Revelation 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Or literally, the Lamb was standing. And with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. They're blameless. We're really going to look at the first part of this section in, in, in chapter 14. Because there's a divide that happens here in between verses 5 and 6. And so we're only going to look at the first five verses. But I wanted, you ever been in a situation where maybe you've seen a wreck? You're going down a road, going down the highway, and you've seen just a horrible wreck. And maybe you've said something like, man, who could have survived that? You ever seen one of those? Man, who could have survived that? Or when we watch, you know, we, we recently had a hurricane that, you know, that came through and I think we all remember Katrina, right? Although we were living in Kentucky at the time of Katrina, but I, I remember seeing some of the aftermath of all that. And then you see a storm like that somewhere and you think, man, who in the world could have survived that? So you understand the situation? I mean, I'm talking about a bad situation. It's not like, it's not like you know, one where we go, you know, we go, oh man, I could do that. I could get through that. It's one where you're just, you're, you're amazed that anybody could possibly come out of that alive. When we were in Louisville, I got to know several men that were World War II veterans. And they were, I mean, these, these were men. And at the time we were there, they were, you know, they were in their 80s, and they, they, they were just, they were men. And several of these men, I got to know several of them that fought with Patton, went through Europe with Patton. And uh, I got to know one gentleman who was actually on D-Day. I think it was the first Airborne Rangers. I think it was the first time that they had used them. Anyway, he was on oh, D-Day. He was one of the ones dropped behind enemy lines. Dropped behind the lines. And he would talk about it some. And he would get to a certain point and he would stop and he would say, I, I can't go there. Some of these other men who had been in, in things like that, you know, in, in, in that part. And, and I remember one specifically telling me, there's no way I could ever make you understand. Because at the time, you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan and 
Uh, and I was asking one about D-Day, and I said, what, it was, is that pretty accurate? I mean, is that? And, and he just said, look, he said, there's no way I could ever make you understand. I could never make you understand what it was like. Now, there have been numerous things throughout history where we've gone, how in the world could anybody survive that? But think about storming that beach on D-Day. How in the world could anybody survive that? And yet some did. Right? Some did. And eventually we go and storm the beach and win the day and that evil, that outburst of evil in that evil Nazi empire led by Hitler begins to crumble. And then it's dealt a death blow. And it's in the ash bins of history, right? It's in the ash bins of history. But you get my point. You, you, you think, uh, how in the world could anybody survive that? What about, that was an outbreak of evil. I think everyone would agree. Although they're rewriting history now and nothing's evil anymore. But I think if we're thinking through a Christian worldview, we saw that. That was an outbreak of evil. What about the other outbreaks of evil that have happened? What about those other times? Go back through the history of the church. Go back through the history of the world and these outbreaks of these evil empires and slaughter, genocides. And go back to the early years of the history of the church when Rome set its target on the church and went after Christians and went after the church. And there was great persecution. There were waves of great persecution. We look back and read those histories and think, how in the world did anybody survive any of that? But not only that, but just think about the outburst. Think about what we've seen in this section, beginning in chapter 12, with Satan, the dragon, and the war, and his anger, and his rage after Christ, and he can't get him. And so where does he turn his guns? He turns it on the church. He turns it on us. And then there's chapter 13. What about the outbreaks of that evil? That first beast, the Antichrist, just outright evil. You see it up front. And then the second beast, that deception that comes, that comes and deceives people. And before long, you're swept up in it and you're, you're, you're worshiping the beast. You're worshiping Satan. And all in the name of just having temporary safety. And just don't kill me now. Just spare my life. And we see these outbreaks of evil. So, how did people survive that? That's one, one question. How can we survive it right now? Because there's outbreaks now. There's outbreaks now. But then also there's a future aspect to this. How will we survive? How will we survive it? See, again, as we've gone through 12 and 13, I think the language, the symbolic imagery that's being used, will it end? I think it will end at some point in the future. I don't know how far off. I don't know. But it will end at some point in the future with the climax of evil and culminate in Satan's attempt through the Antichrist and the false prophet. And I don't think this thing's just going to get better. Now, there may, before we get there, there may be times of awakenings and blessings just like there have been throughout the history of the church so far. 
But when we get to the end, I don't think it's going to be pretty. I don't think it's going to be something that you're going to say, yeah, I volunteer for that. It's going to be something where we read about it and we go, how in the world does anybody survive that? How could anybody survive the onslaught of Satan full bore? How could anybody survive this outright evil in the Antichrist? How could anybody survive the the subtle deception that's going to come with this other person, this other beast, and the deception and deceiving? And how in the world we throw our hands up and think, how in the world? I don't have the strength to survive that. I don't have the resources to survive that. I'm not smart enough in my own mind to avoid that kind of deception. I don't even know if I have the boldness and strength strength to face outright evil where a sword's put to my neck and said deny Christ or die. I don't even know if if I have that kind of courage within me. Who in the world survives that? Well, in the first part of chapter 14, John's going to answer that question. He's going to answer this. You see, what he does in the midst of where we've been in this this evil, and it has been, man, it's been heavy. Chapter 12 has been heavy. Chapter 13 has been heavy. And look, before we get to that good stuff at the end where we start to see heaven and all that, we're fixing to go through some more heavy stuff. But there's a brief window of victory right here in these five verses. Because after this in verse 6, it gets heavy again. In fact, some of the most... Vivid language about judgment and hell come at the end of chapter 14. Some of the most horrifying ideas about God's judgment comes in the end of chapter 14. But then in these five verses, there's this brief window of victory. And I think, John, I think we can look at it, and especially if we, if we stay in this section, 12, 13, and 14... We, we could answer this question, who in the world survives this? It's, it's like, look at it on two levels. The first level would be this. And it's not a good level, but it's, it's, it's a level because there are people who temporarily survive it. And how do they survive it? They give in. They give in. They take the mark of the beast. And all they're concerned about is saving their neck. All they want to do is save their business. All they want to do is save their family. All they want to do is save their And what will they do? They'll buy into the deception. That's what they'll do. They'll take the mark of the beast. And see, they survive temporarily. Because you remember in 12 and 13, he goes after the ones who actually take the mark of the beast? That's not who he's killing. Who's he killing? He's killing the ones who don't take the mark of the beast, right? Temporarily, they don't survive. Believers don't survive. Who is it that temporarily survives? It's the unbelievers. And they think they've got it. Ah, we've beat this thing. Man, we've done this. Look how good we are. Man, you know man's going to beat this coronavirus. Man's going to beat this racism. Man's going to beat this. Man's going to take care of it. Whatever problem pops up in the world, man's going to do it. Science is going to do it. And all this stuff, right? Look how good we are. Man's put down evil after evil after evil. And we have survived and we will continue to survive. You get it? That's the deception. That's the mark of a beast. Because it is a heart that has rebelled against God and has rejected Him totally. 
See, at the end of the day, the mark, yeah, we could talk about chips and this and that and where is it going to be and how and all that. But at the end of the day, the mark of the beast is an unconverted heart that has rejected God. And then it plays out. It plays out in government because what Satan does is he comes and he smooths and he slowly, sometimes outright though, sometimes he'll come and take over a government. Sometimes he just smooths, sly deception, sways a government to anti-God policies, right? That's what he does. People go along with it. Why? Because we're going to be safe. We're going to be okay. Temporarily. Wait till we get to the end of 14. And you're going to see what's going to happen to these people. And it ain't pretty. And it breaks, it should break our heart to think that anyone that we know is going to face this kind of judgment. So that's on one level. But the level really where we need to focus because those, yeah, you can, you, can, you can reject God and save your neck today. You could do that. You could bow the knee today and they won't burn your business and you could do all this and they won't mess with you and, 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 until you don't do it enough and then they come after you. But there's a whole other level that John's pointing to here. And yeah, it is that you lose temporarily. In fact, if God has said to the sword you're going, you're going to the sword. If you stand for truth and they come and they, they ridicule you and they make fun of you and you don't have a lot of friends and people this and that and they, they mistreat you and they're mean to you, even if it goes to the point to where they actually take your life. You see, temporarily people look and go, man, what fools. Ultimately though, you see, we're going to get to Revelation 21 and 20, 22. That's where this is building. You understand? That's where this is building. We will come out of this judgment and we'll see that. And, and, and here briefly, in, in these five verses, that's what John's going to do. He's going to show us this is, this is who ultimately wins here. This is who ultimately wins in this. It's those who don't take the mark of the beast. It's those who don't bow the knee. Those who don't reject God, the truth, the gospel, don't buy into. It's those. They're the ones who are ultimately going to win. There are going to be ongoing manifestations of evil, and it's going to break out. And sometimes it's going to be bad, and sometimes it may not be quite so bad. Sometimes there's going to be genocide. Sometimes there may not be, but there are going to be. So who is it that survives? That's the question. I want to know, am I going to survive it? There's a choice here also. Because in this section, John's calling for a choice. We've got a decision to make. Where are we going to end up? What side are we going to come down on? Take the mark of the beast? Survive today? Or reject the mark of the beast? And follow our Savior? Even though we may not survive today. I mean, there's a clear choice here, too, I think, in these verses, and really throughout this whole section. So who, who is it that's going to survive? Now, again, 14 is in, in context. 14 goes with 12 and 13. It's this break before we get to the seven bowls and the last judgment 
that's uh, poured out on the earth and uh, 14 is, is sort of capping off 12 and 13. So you have to look at these three chapters together. And here's the, I think what, what John does in, in, in looking at this question, asking this question about this, who is it that's going to survive? I think he's going to show survivors in, in, in two ways, sort of like in showing these survivors in, in, in two lights. It, it's, it's the first thing is what do they do? What do survivors do? And then I think he's going to show, okay, now here's the real character of survivors. Here's who they really are. So that's the way we're going to approach these five verses. So first, what is it that they do? What is it they're doing? Now notice what he says in in verse 1. Because the first thing we see is worship. Now, the other thing I want you to understand, this isn't private either. This is public. I think, I think the whole scene here of this worship is public. It has a public character about it. And also when it gets to, to the character, the nature of those who are survivors, the, the, I think these, these are public. In other words, these aren't things that are hidden away somewhere in a closet and you pull them out on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays. This is, this is who these people are. This is public. And when people think about them, this is what they think about them. This is how they see them. But the first thing is what they do. Again, I think, it, uh, think in terms of public here. There is private worship, but there's also public worship. That's what we're doing this morning. So this is what he says, then I looked. Now, when he uses this phrase, then I looked, it's always introducing this new information. Now, in context, it still goes with 12, 13, 14 still goes with these chapters. But then he looks. After the, the, the scene of 12, after what he saw in 13, he looks. And behold, he sees something. Notice what he sees. The first thing that he sees is the object of our worship. The object of our worship, the object of their worship here. So he sees, and what does he see? He sees a lamb standing. This lamb is standing. And where is this lamb standing? This lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Now, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time to convince you who this lamb is. This lamb is Christ. He's called the Lamb of God throughout the first part of this. He'll continue to be called the Lamb. I think it's clear. This Lamb has been introduced to us. It is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This Lamb is Christ. And He's standing. As John looks, He's standing on Mount Zion. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with this. I only mention this, all right? You got two choices about Mount Zion here. Some say that he is literally standing on Mount Zion in the Middle East and that this is, this is something that's going to happen in the future. That what this is, is this is the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's what John see. this lamb standing. By the way, it's in contrast. Remember chapter 13, the beast rises up out of the sea. Remember the beast and Satan, how... You know, they're, they're sort of standing around earth like it's theirs. No, this lamb's standing on Mount Zion. All right? So is it literally Mount Zion? Is it literally, if we move, if we're looking at this sort of on a timeline and we're moving along a timeline, we've moved to the future and he's standing on Mount Zion. The key to this is, is really understanding verse 4. How we look at verse 4. We'll get to that in just a second. The other option is this, that no, we're back. This is what John, John's been doing this. This is symbolic language. The lamb is standing. He sees this vision. He's standing on Mount Zion. If you look at the Old Testament, Mount Zion, especially the prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah, and and you look and see and you understand Zion, this mount was used symbolically of the place where the Messiah was going to gather all his people together. 
This was the place where he was going to gather all his people. So is this symbolic language of this place of gathering that's a place of victory, a place of triumph? Is that what he's doing? It's Mount Zion. He added to this too, because we've been here a little bit before when Paul talks about the heavenly Jerusalem in Galatians 4. And if you go, if you want to just sketch this down, go, go read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22-23. And it talks about this heavenly Zion. It wasn't a literal Zion that the writer of Hebrews is talking. He's talking about a heavenly Zion. The idea, if it's symbolic, the idea is this is a place of victory. He's seeing the Messiah victorious, triumphant over what he's just seen. The dragon in 12, the first beast in 13, the second beast in 13, evil unleashed. And who is standing victorious? It is the lamb that was slain. Which is the first hint of how we survive. You see it? If he's the one who's beaten this, guess who I want to be connected with? <laughs> right? I'm not going to join myself to somebody who's, who I see very clearly. Their end and doom is the lake of fire. But if, if I'm deceived and I'm thinking that's the way to go, you see? No, he sees this lamb. So this is the object of the worship. It's the lamb and he's standing on this Mount Zion. Strength, victory. And notice what else he says. And with him there were 144,000 who had his name and his, uh, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I think this is the same 144,000 to chapter 7. If you remember back in chapter 7, we went through that chapter. I think that what we're seeing here is not some sort of subset of the people of God. It's not like this is a group within the people of God. And again, chapter uh, verse 4, how we see verse 4 is, is key to that. This could very well be a group within the people of God in the future who have been saved out of the tribulation and then you go, okay, then who are they? And this is, and then it really gets divided. Are these Jewish people? Are they Jewish men? Because that's how they're going to be identified in verse 4. So it could be that this is a, a, a particular group, subset of the people of God in the future who have been saved. Or again, we could be still dealing with symbolic language. And the 144,000, the same as I think in chapter 7, is symbolic language of the total representation of the redeemed people of God. There he is, standing. Mount Zion, triumph, victory. He's got this 144,000 on their name. Oh, his, they have his name and the Father's name. They got the Lamb's name, the Father's name. You remember chapter 7? They're sealed. They're sealed. In other words, this is ownership. Who is it that owns these people? God owns these people. The Lamb owns these people. We'll see that further in this description that's given. So then to verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing. They're worshiping. Now I think, I think the ones that are, are, are singing here are the 144,000. In other words, I think this is a song of redemption. I think it's a song of what, if this is symbolic, then it's what the totality of the redeemed people of God, the total number of believers, and this is what they're doing, they're worshiping. I love the way John continues to use these metaphors here. 
I mean, think about what he says about this voice. I heard a voice from heaven. We've seen the voice before in other places. And it's like the roar of many waters. You ever been next to a big waterfall? I've never been to Niagara Falls. But if you've been to Niagara Falls, I've heard that this is an illustration that's often used. Stand there and it's loud. Right? Libby shaking her head. You be in? All right, so you got a picture in your mind, right? That's what this voice, John says, it's like the voice of many waters. It's like the sound of loud thunder. You heard that thunder in those powerful thunderstorms? What is that? That's raw power, isn't it? That's just raw power. But then he takes the metaphor in another direction. Because he says, I heard, I heard the, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Libby, I don't know, when you were standing at Niagara Falls, did you go, wow, that sounds like harps? Sounds like harpist. It sounds like somebody strumming a harp. No, you didn't think that, did you? You're like, man, this is powerful. But then here comes another metaphor, but it's like harps. John does this in Revelation. That's why in apocalyptic literature, in this symbolic language, you know, we try to get too literal with it. We miss what he's trying to say. What's he saying? This voice is magnificent. This voice is like no other voice. It is raw power, but yet at the same time, it is beautiful and it is sweet. You remember when Saul was troubled, that troubling spirit God sent him? And one of the first things David did for Saul, you remember what David did? David played the harp, and when he would play the harp, Saul would calm down. And Saul tried to kill him again. Raw power, but yet at the same time, this beautiful, sweet sound. It's this song. Now, this is what he says about this song. He goes a little further. They were singing a new song before the throne. This is before God's throne. And before the four living creatures and before the elders. We've seen these guys before. Where are they? They're at the very throne of God. This is going on before the very throne of God. This worship, this singing. But notice this. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is a song only believers can sing. No one could learn the song. Now chapter 5, verse 9, these guys are singing before the throne. You remember going all the way back to chapter 5, the scene of the throne of God. They're singing, all right? But they're not singing this song. They couldn't even learn this song. I think it's, again, it's the language is, it's not that they couldn't hear it and go, wow, that's a pretty song. Learning here in the sense of knowing it, knowing it personally, learning it in the sense of it being yours. You remember as a child learning a song and just going around singing it and singing it and singing it, and maybe you still do it today, I don't know. You know, that song just sort of takes hold of you and, you know, when I'm down, I got my favorite song. When I'm up, I got, you know, that, that kind of thing. You just learn it. You know it. It becomes yours. That's, that's the idea here. This song here that they're singing, and it is a song of redemption. It is a song of redemption. Only human beings. As you go back and look at creation, God's created everything. The angelic world, and again, going back to chapter 12 and the fall of Satan and all that stuff that happened, demons and all that. You see, in the angelic world, they can't experience redemption. They fail, they fail. They can't be redeemed. The only part of God's creation that can be redeemed is us. I mean, why do you think Jesus took on 
a human body. You see, we're the only part of His creation that can be redeemed. We're the only part of His creation that can learn this song, that can know this song, that can know the grace of God. The angels want to look into it. They have a desire to look into it. I think it's Peter that tells us that. But they can't know it personally. We can. We can. I mean, we were singing this morning, right? It's beautiful music, beautiful music. Move to the core of, man, thinking about the grace of God and the redemption in Christ and holy, 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 and he's a holy and righteous God and I'm not and yet he saved me and he loves me in spite of my unholiness and my sin. He sent a Savior to die for me, to purchase me out of my sin and misery and so forth. He picked me up out of the muck and the mire and He set my feet on a rock. And who is that rock? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we not then sing holy, holy, holy? How can we then not sing to His glory? You see, that's the song of redemption we know. The world doesn't know that song. The world has its own songs. And all the world's songs point us to man and say, trust man. The song of redemption points us to the Lamb. Oh, by the way, the Lamb that's standing on Mount Zion. That's the song we know. If you are a believer, you know this song. You know the song. And so that's what they're doing. They're singing before the throne in the presence of God. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now here we come to verse 4. Because now we get to... They're they're worshipping. You see, this is what survivors are doing. They're worshipping. They're worshipping the Lamb. But now we get to what what survivors are like. Man, verse 4 has created a lot of controversy. Because again, are we going to take this... You know, in in a literal sense, if the 144,000 are some future subset, particular group of the people of God, and this is describing them, then listen to this description, verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. We were reading through this Wednesday night, and I just offhandedly joked, it's, ladies, it's your fault. Any relationship with you defiles us as men. If he says it was Eve. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you, you see, if, if, if we're going to look at this and say, okay, this has got to be some, some literal group of people, then is it, that, is it that any relationship with women's bad? Well, what are we going to do with uh, the fact that sometimes, especially Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, look, it's good not to marry. You know, he does say that. Celibacy, is this talking about celibacy? Like celibacy is the highest thing? Because you notice what it says. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They're celibate. So celibacy is, is, is you know, like the... But, but there are places where marriage is described as a gift from God. But now, to be fair, you know, Jesus talks about this, eunuchs and celibacies and... Celibates and and talks about there's some who are this way voluntarily because they want to give their life to God. There are some who have been made this way. You know, they were a slave and they were made this way and and so forth. But yet you get to 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul's talking about the married and the unmarried. And Paul does say, now listen to the unmarried. Let me tell you something. 
There is an advantage not to being married. And that advantage not to be married is that your sole total devotion is to Christ. You don't have to come home and have your wife say, gee, you're late today. You see, you don't have to come home and say, oh my gosh, man, I've got to play with the kids. That's a beautiful thing and it is a gift from God. This can't be sort of denigrating either celibacy or in some way denigrating marriage. It, it can't be that. See, that's why I think this is symbolic language. What is it symbolic language of? I think it's symbolic language of this. In the Old Testament, Israel's called the Virgin of God. And there's always a connection between spiritual adultery and God, right? So in other words, spiritually speaking, you, you could play the harlot. And men or women both could do that. Israel did it. Then you get to the New Testament and the church is described as and called the Bride of Christ. And we're going to get there. Chapter 19. There's going to be this wonderful, beautiful marriage ceremony where Christ is going to be wed to His church. This virgin church. Not defiled. But wait a minute. We're sinners? Yeah, we are. But we've been purchased and redeemed and in just a second we're going to see we're described as blameless. Not because of us. Go read James chapter 4. Jot that down somewhere in the margin. And read James chapter 4 because James very clearly says, listen, why are you guys fighting and fussing and carrying on? Let me tell you why. You're committing spiritual adultery. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? You are playing the adulteress. You are committing spiritual adultery. So it's possible that what he's talking about here is this symbolic language. That they weren't defiled with women. They didn't give themselves over to idols. They stayed faithful to the covenant. They didn't play the harlot here. First characteristic of the people that survived this is they're not double-minded, as James says. Not one foot in the gospel and one foot in the world and straddling and playing the game and just depends on who I'm with. They are faithful to the gospel. They are faithful to the covenant. And they've not defiled themselves with these idols. They've not defiled themselves with this evil deception that, that comes. Uh, they are virgins. They are pure. Not because of us, but because of our Savior. Notice this too. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's another characteristic. Who is it that survives? They're, they're, they're not defiled. They haven't taken the mark of the beast. And they're, they're going to follow their Savior wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. Wherever He leads, I will what? I'll go. We sing that, right? Sing that wonderful hymn. They follow Him wherever He leads. And this is what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you want to follow me? There is denial of self. Remember that passage? You take up your cross, which was an instrument of death. It's not just taking on burdens. You're dying to self. You remember the third thing he said? And what? Follow me. He's strolling around looking for those men and what does he do when he runs up to Matthew and he runs up to Peter and James and John? What does he say to them? Follow me. And what they do? 
dropped everything and followed him. Did they understand everything? No. No. They dropped everything and they followed him. So this is another characteristic. Who's going to survive as followers of the Lamb? These are disciples. These are ones who have given their life to the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Again, first fruits. If this is sort of future and this is some subset, then, then first fruits could mean that they're going to be sort of like the first ones raised and then there's more to follow. They're going to be the, sort of like the first ones out of the tribulation. And then there's going to be more to follow. It could be that way. But again, we could still be in symbolic language. First fruits, Old Testament offering of the first fruits. They would pull the first fruits, they would wave them before God, and it was saying to God, We thank you for this, and we are trusting you for the rest. We're trusting you for the rest of the harvest. So here they've been redeemed. We dealt with redemption, they've been purchased, they've been bought. Not with gold and silver and good works and Sunday school attendance and giving our money and doing all of that and attending churches. No, you weren't bought with that. You weren't redeemed with that. You were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter tells us. Right? You've been bought out of the slave market of sin. Redeemed. You are not your own. You are His. He bought you. But notice this. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for the... Uh, for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, there's no lie. There's no lie. So if you ever told a lie, do you not qualify for this group? How many of us would? So uh, I, obviously I wouldn't be in that group, right? No, I, again, I think it's symbolic language for defilement. This, this is all about defilement. They, they're, they're not defiled. They've been faithful to their God. I mean, David's called a man after God's own heart, Right? Look at the mess David did. Look at all the mess he did. And then the last thing he says, and they, for they are blameless. Blameless how? Blameless because it is Christ's righteousness that's given to us. Remember several weeks ago on a, on a communion Sunday we dealt with justification? It is the righteousness of Christ that's given to us so that God then justifies us, declares us not guilty. If you are in Christ, He does not look at you and see your sin and rebellion. When He looks at you, He sees the blood of Christ. And you are blameless because you were covered in the blood of Christ. Do you understand that? We could spend some time and go back and look at the tabernacle and the mercy seat and the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat and the glory of God would come down and look through that blood and see Aaron's rod and the tablets and the jar of man, all that represented man's sin and rebellion. And he looks down through that and he sees blood. Remember there's an old song how God looks through rose-colored glasses. He sees us blameless in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean I'm made perfect yet. That's the way he sees me. That's my standing. Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, but that righteousness that comes from him. That's the way he sees me as a believer. Does that give me license to go sin? Oh, if he sees me that way, then I'm just going to live as I please. No, Paul deals with that. God forbid. Because of his grace, do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, it's in the light of that grace that I then say, you know what? I'm going to be this. I'm not going to defile myself with the things of this world. I'm going to stay faithful to my covenant Savior. 
That's the characteristics of those who survive. It's not perfection. It's not about you know, tallying up scores and saying, well, my good outweighs my bad. If that's the way you're looking at it, you don't survive. In fact, you've already bought into the lie. See, the heart of a believer looks at it and says, my only hope, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, I looked at the one who's standing on Mount Zion. Standing. Triumphant. Victorious. And you know what he's doing right now? He's standing and he's saying, come. Come. That's what he's doing right now. See, that's why I think there's, there's also a sense in which there's a choice here. Where are you going to be found? What side are you going to come down on? Where are you going to be? Who survives? It's those in Christ. That's who survives. How could anyone survive this onslaught of evil? And think about the future. Let's, let's just go ahead and think because it's coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. It's going to outbreak. It's, there's going to be outbreaks of it all over until we get there. But who in the world is going to survive it? It's those who are in Christ. That's who's going to survive. It's true worshipers. It's true believers. That's who's going to survive it. Listen, there's the other thing you need to understand. That's why there, there's this clear choice here. There is no neutrality here. There's no neutrality. Listen, we've skated free in the United States of America for 100, 150 years, or really since the founding of this country. We've sort of skated free from the outburst of evil that we've seen in other places where genocide is taking place. And we, we've been able to sort of, as believers in the United States of America, sort of be neutral. As long as my life is good and my things are okay and, you know, I have my stuff and, I, you know, maybe I get a little concerned about what's happening in other places of the world, but you see, you get my point? Until something happens here, and then, and then we're like, oh my gosh, until coronavirus hit. There's no neutrality here. You cannot. The characteristic of those who survive, and this description that's given here, is not the description of a person who says, I believe the Bible, I believe the Gospel, I go to church, I do all that that would be considered at least outwardly when people would look, and, and I honor Christ, I do all of that. Yet really and truly there is absolutely no difference in the way that person thinks and the world thinks. There is absolutely no difference in the way that person lives and the way a person in the world lives. There is absolutely no difference in that person's life despite what they confess with their mouth. And the average person who's in the world who cares nothing for Christ and nothing for church. We used to could get by with that. I'm telling you, the time's coming, the line's being drawn. We don't get by with that anymore. That's why there's a choice, and the choice is clear. There's the Lamb standing. He's standing. You want to go for temporary safety? Go ahead. Just wait, Lord willing, if we get to the end of chapter 14. And when we get through that description of judgment and what those people face, 
Then let's talk. Let's talk then. Let me read to you. I made reference to this several weeks ago about John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote another allegory called The Holy War. Beautiful allegory of the the way Satan attacks and the spiritual warfare. The very last paragraph of this book, this is how Bunyan closes his book. Man's soul is the city that, that Satan comes after. And all of the ways that he tries, the Abelos is coming after man's soul, and he's, he's all this. And then, and then, this is the way he ends. Remember, oh my man's soul. This is God speaking to man. This is God speaking to his people. This is God speaking to believers. This is God speaking to those that survive. Remember, oh my man's soul, that you are my beloved. As I have taught you to watch, to fight, to pray, and to make war against my enemies, so now I command you to believe that my love is constant. Not here today and gone tomorrow. No matter the circumstance, it's constant. Oh, my man-soul. I have set my heart and love upon you. That should break us right there, the fact that God loves us. Here's the last sentence. Watch and hold fast to my words until paradise becomes your eternal home. You watch, you hold fast, you fight, you survive until paradise becomes my eternal home. Who survives? Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this book's going to end with that victory. It's going to end with that victory. And what a glorious victory it is.